Hello and welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein and I have the privilege of being your host coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through about aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, any time. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end, where we're also going to share some exciting opportunities for you. And also, please feel free to share this with people who you know who will also find it of interest. Now, if you've been following the news recently, you know at least the basics that as of last month, Israel's government has fallen apart, and the Knesset, our parliament, voted to dissolve itself, leading to new elections this coming fall. These will be our fifth elections in three and a half years. Not exactly a sign of political stability, despite Israel being a strong democracy. Today, we want to dig into what happened that caused the government to fall and what look forward to what's coming up with the current uh, upcoming election. And with us today, we have a tremendous guest, honestly, who I've looked for a way to host in some capacity, and this is the perfect opportunity. Kalev Ben David is one of Israel's preeminent English broadcast journalists. He has reported on and from Israel and the Middle East for over three decades and is currently co-anchor of I-24 News's daily program, The Rundown, and, it's pol- and is its political and diplomatic analyst. Throughout his career, he has served a number of prominent positions, including as managing editor of the Jerusalem Post, the Israel bureau chief for Bloomberg News, political and diplomatic correspondent for IBA News, and senior arts editor of the Jerusalem Report. He has provided commentary for international outlets, including CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera, PBS, and many others, and was a contributing author to the book Yitzhak Rabin, Warrior for Peace. He is a winner of the Rock Hour Award for Best in Jewish Journalism and was the founding director of the Israel Project's Jerusalem office. He's also taught journalism at the Herzliya Interdisciplinary Center School of Communications. Kalev was born in New York and holds a bachelor's degree in fine arts from New York University. He's also a veteran of the IDF and lives in Jerusalem with his wife and two daughters. Appropriately, like his biblical namesake, Kalev, or Caleb in English, is one of our guests' incredible qualities, is bringing positive reports from Israel. Biblically, Caleb and Joshua were honored for their positive reports, unlike the rest of the spies, most of whose names we don't even know. And I know you will be blessed by our guest, Kalev's knowledge and his insight today. Kalev, welcome. Thank you so much for making time today. It's a busy, um, it's a busy news season. It's a busy political season. And um, I want to jump in. But before we do, I always love getting to host people like myself. Who, are, who, who weren't born here, but chose to live here. You're here in Israel for over three decades. Um, and before we get into that, could you share when and why you made Aliyah and what it's been like here in Israel, um, not just living um, the a part of Jewish history, but also reporting on it and, and uh, the history that's being made? Right, Jonathan. So actually next week will be my the anniversary, the official date of my anniversary making Aliyah. Uh, 37 years, July 7th is my Aliyah date. Uh, and, uh, I came when I was 25. And for me, it was, uh, uh, I wasn't raised in a particularly Zionist household or, or a religiously Jewish household. I mean, we were, we Jewish ethnically strongly identified. I had been on Israel. I had worked on a kibbutz as a volunteer, but it was really, uh, towards the end of my years in college and university and just after, I had a sort of Jewish awakening. I wanted to somehow uh, realize or maximize my Jewish identity. And I really couldn't find a comfortable framework for that in the United States for me. And I said, I may, maybe I'll give Israel a try. And really, from the time that I stepped foot in Israel then in my mid-20s, I felt at home. And uh, I did take the name 
Kalev or Caleb uh, in English exactly for the story, the reason you gave. That wasn't my wow. given name. I took it because I identified with that character, the biblical character, Kalev ben Yufune, who basically encouraged the Israelites to enter the land of, Can- uh, of Canaan, the land of Israel from Sinai. And uh, I have to say, I, I have never regretted it for, for one moment. Wow. Uh, you know, with all the problems that we have in Israel, it has always felt like home to me. It's so amazing. I, I didn't know that about you. I didn't know um, deliberate, that you deliberately and purposefully took the name Kalev. And, and that's fascinating. Honestly, you've got my heart racing because I think it's so amazing that you identified with this biblical character, your biblical namesake. And, um, and now you're doing what you're doing, which is, as I, uh, I thought it was pretty insightful for me to, to identify the fact that you're reporting good news from Israel just like he did. But I don't know that was your career path at 25. Now, was it? Uh, you know what? Um, actually, I studied. Uh, I went to New York University. I studied in the famous film school there. Uh, but I did a minor in journalism because I figured that's going to be my safe profession, journalism. There'll always be jobs in journalism. <laughs> and when I came to Israel in 1985, uh, there wasn't really much of a film or even television business here. So I started working for the Jerusalem Post. Uh, and I've stayed on in journalism. It's turned out not to be quite the, uh, for other people, I guess, the secure profession because it's gone through so many changes. Uh, but for me, it turned out to be the right thing to do. I mean, one interesting thing is about six years ago, I moved from print. I was exclusively a print journalist, really. Uh, but I moved into television because I made some TV appearances as an analyst. People said I came off good on TV. I said, well, I'll give it a shot. And here I am hosting. That's amazing. Uh, anchoring the rundown on I-24 News. Yeah, by the way, so I don't forget, where can people follow you, follow you on I-24? First of all, there's, on the internet, you can just do www.i24news.com. Uh, so we are on the net. Uh, but we you have to look at your local stations. Uh, certainly in the United States, we're, on Com- we're, vi- we're available on Comcast. Uh, provided you have the package that uh, includes it, which is usually, we're usually where you find the foreign news channels. Uh, which is where you would find BBC or uh, Sky uh, or France 24. That, that's usually the side of where Got we it. found. Uh, so, uh, but again, or you could look at my Facebook page because I post a lot of my clips on Facebook. You do. And sometimes dance routines as well that we get to see, but we'll keep that. We'll keep that for another conversation. Okay. So, so let's, let's jump into the politics. We're in right. this crazy season again. And I know crazy is my, uh, is my um, a, a subjective word, but and you can tell me that I'm wrong or or, or not. But let, before we do, you and I are both also American citizens, um, and for for listeners who are used to an American political system where there's a president and the president is elected every four years, and there are midterm elections like we have in off years like this year. Israel's parliamentary democracy is unique, and a lot of people don't get it, much less much less how it can be that a government just doesn't last its normal term. Can you give a quick oversight as to as to what our system's like here? I can. I'm going to qualify your statement. It's not entirely unique because, as you said, it's a parliamentary system. Actually, many countries, maybe even a majority of democratic countries, have parliamentary Good systems, point. not presidential uh, systems or federal systems uh, 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 like the United States. Um, so uh, it's it's not to- what is unique is maybe the social makeup of Israel and how that plays out uh, in the in the parliament and how parliament breaks down. But for example, my wife is a is Dutch born, and uh, if the Dutch uh, also have a parliamentary system, and I know from that it's not unusual that you have many elections. Right. Uh, you know, the most famous example would be Italy, which oh, uh, yeah, which has uh, you know dozens of elections since World War II. It's also not unusual; it would take sometimes a long period to form a government. The in the Netherlands, they they've sometimes had to wait long months, periods, uh, to form a government. And it's not even unusual that the person who is not who who is the leader of one of the the minority parties, I mean, not the biggest party, actually then becomes prime minister because they have to form a coalition with other parties. 
It's unusual that someone like Naftali Bennett, whose party was so small, seven seats out of 120 became prime minister. But it's not unusual uh, that it, uh, necessarily that it's that it's always the biggest party in parliament that becomes uh, the government because they would need an absolute majority in the parliament. So uh, it's a parliamentary system, a coalition system. We have 120 seats in the Knesset. You vote not for a person, but for a party. And uh, it's which, whichever party or the leader of whichever party can form a coalition of at least 61 seats, who, he becomes the prime minister. And uh, that will explain, you know, people why, although Benjamin Netanyahu may be the most popular politician in the country, which he is, but he not popular enough to command a full majority of the um, uh, 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 in the parliament. Uh, because it's a very fragmented vote. And that explains why he's not, he was not able to form a government after previous four elections. And that is where we are today. Right. I will just yeah. say one, I'm just going to add one other note for people say Americans who say, well, that sounds so weird. I'll <laughs> remind people the last couple of elections, uh, 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 you know, we've had in the U.S. elections where the person who won the majority uh, votes in the United States, total votes, did not become the president because of the Electoral College. So America, Excellent. America has its weird, the American political system has its weird quirks as well. Excellent point. Thank you for raising that about the Electoral College, um, because that that is something that, that non-Americans, first of all, many Americans don't fully understand and, and dispute, but non, non-Americans right. certainly don't understand. So thank you for, for that. Um, now, I think we're, I guess we're about 13 months pa- beyond when the now outgoing government um, was it was installed, um, and and it was a strange government, it was a unique. I won't qualify it as strange. Unique government in the sense that it yeah. represented eight different political parties, from the right to the left, and and with the with an Arab party in there as well. Um, it, it just barely at the time broke the threshold of fifty percent. Um, of the of the vote, and a lot of people thought it wasn't going to last. I mean, a few months, much less a year, and until it dissolved. What happened? What happened um, now? Uh, Thirteen months. Well, when when the government fell apart, a year after the government was installed, that the government actually didn't make it and fell apart finally. Uh, Jonathan, I think the the the, the question actually, I'm going to flip your question. The question would be, how did that government even manage to stay going for one year? Good. Uh, because, uh, you know, the uniqueness is not that it was so diverse, I think, uh, uh, from right to left, because we've had other governments that were pretty diverse. And even Benjamin Netanyahu has been part of and headed governments that I think were pretty diverse. Just remember, until 2015, him and him and Yair Lapid were in a government together in Sippy Livni, who has, has moved quite to the left. Uh, but there was two things very unique about the three things, I would say. One is that the majority party was not in the government. Right. Uh, the Likud, no, I take that back. The biggest party, definitely biggest. Not the majority party. The biggest party was not in the in the, in the government. That's unique. Previous so-called unity governments, which were diverse, always had this sort of uh, the biggest parties involved. Uh, the other was, as you mentioned, the inclusion of an Arab party. That is a huge, that was a really landmark thing, unusual, the Ram party. Even more unusual, it was uh, a party that originally was based on an Islamist or religious ideology, but its leader, Mansour Abbas, kind of moved it to a more accommodating position on Zionism, unique in Arab politics. And that may be the lasting legacy of this government, the real lasting legacy. Um, And the third is, as I said before, unique that the, the man who added well, the person who headed the government was not the person whose party had the most seats in that government. That would have been Yair Lapid. Uh, his Yeshati party had the, had the highest number of seats. It was Naftali Bennett's uh, uh, Yamina party, which had, uh, was smaller than a few of the other parties in the government. Uh, and that's because uh, yeah, Naftali Bennett was the consensus candidate, someone more to the right than Yair Lapid, and that's acceptable to the right-wing elements in the party. Uh, but uh, when you have a government like that, so diverse, uh, included in Arab party, the leader of the, the government is not the head of the biggest uh, party in the government, it's going to be very unstable. But funny thing is, it lasted a year, and it did accomplish, it had its accomplishments. So uh, I would, and, and ironically, 
the weak link in the government, it didn't really fall because it was too diverse. It fell because Naftali Bennett uh, turned out not to be, to, to make, had made political mistakes. He didn't secure his own party uh, well enough. And when the government cracked, he had, it was such a narrow uh, government of 61 seats. It was his, it was his own party that, t- that turned out to be the weak link. He himself admits that was the one big mistake. He didn't take care of the uh, Knesset members as his own party. Uh, he showed some political inexperience as a first-time prime minister, and he, and he paid the price for it ultimately. Well, well very well said, uh, and, and political inexperience is legitimate being a first-time prime minister. Um, certainly, if he's ever prime minister again, he probably won't make those mistakes uh, again. But it's also interesting uh, in, in the sense that you that you also highlighted something unique at least in, in a parliamentary democracy, um, more so than a presidential uh, democracy like the U.S., because I've always said that the prime minister here is campaigning to always win votes in general for the party, but the prime minister is also always sec- looking behind him or herself to secure the, 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 their position within their own party. And you just alluded, you just pointed exactly to what what fell apart. Three of the members of his own um, seven seven seat party split off and 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 broke away, and and then he no longer had their votes. Right, and I, you know I could point to a pretty good example of someone who did learn his lesson, showed political experience. Benjamin Netanyahu in his first government ah, uh, in the nineteen nineties, from nineteen ninety six to nineteen ninety nine, he had some major defections from his party. People that left, uh, David Levy was a senior figure, Dan Meridor, and uh, that weakened him. And in subsequent governments, uh, Netanyahu has made very uh, certain to make sure that his party, the Likud party, is strongly behind him, though some would argue ultimately he was too strong. Uh-huh. And uh, he, uh, you know, his, his methods drove some uh, promising politicians from his only coup party, and that he paid again paid the price for it a year ago when those politicians, Avigdor Lieberman, uh, Gidon Saar, and yes, Naftali Bennett, who at one point was his chief of staff, correct, all uh, uh, joined in a coalition against him. Uh, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, the, one of the reasons that that, that Netanyahu served uh, uh, so long in this second run as prime minister. Is, is because he made sure to secure his home base, the Likud. Right. His second run was, was about 12 years, and he's now today the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. But there's been a lot of talk, not just, not just since the government fell, but before that, uh, and even in between all of these elections that we've had, uh, you mentioned Benjamin Netanyahu is sort of the elephant in the room, right. for good and for bad. Um, he's still the head of the Likud party, um, which which it continues to poll as being the largest party in any subsequent election. But, but some say that um, e- even until the Knesset dissolved, without, without Netanyahu leading the Likud party, a new stable government could have been formed without him present. And, and that that's still sort of the, 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 the challenge going forward is that the polls are showing more or less the same kind of political stalemate that he won't pass. Even Likud will be the largest party, but he won't have enough uh, votes because either the other parties that will be the natural members of his coalition won't get enough, or he's still still, um, alienated those who say they'll never sit in a government with him. Can you explain uh, why that's a situation here? I'll go even further than you, Jonathan. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is not the elephant in the room. He's the room. <laughs> uh, he's the actual room. Look, I, I, there's, there's two. I'm going to discuss there. There's what there. Everybody is saying the four, this is the fifth election in four years. It's the same as all the other elections. I'm going to say there's one way in which this election is very much like the previous elections, but one other way, and you alluded to it, in which it's different. Uh, the way it's, it's, it's the same as the other elections is that this government is a, this election is again going to be a referendum on Benjamin Netanyahu as the previous uh, four were. Now that sounds a bit weird because as we've been discussing, he was not, he's not the incumbent. 
the incumbent was Naftali Bennett. Usually uh, an election is a referendum on the incumbent. Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, Naftali Bennett uh, is not the incumbent when the vote will happen. You know, that will be uh, Yair Lapid. And Yair Lapid will not have much of a record as prime minister. So people re- really, you know, will be judging on whether they will. And beyond that, it's not clear that even if the so-called anti-Netanyahu parties get a majority, that Yair Lapid will be will, will end up being prime minister. It could be some other figure that emerges uh, in that constellation, just as it was Naftali Bennett a year ago. Correct, uh, which no so, one would have predicted. Which no one would have predicted. So in a way, it's not. It's certainly not a referendum on Yair Lapid, who will be the who you know do, who what, do, during the vote will be the incumbent. It's on Netanyahu again because. The main issue in this election is those Israelis that want to see Benjamin Netanyahu again as prime minister and those who don't, because the elect, that's the dividing line among the parties. It's not an ideological dividing line. It's not between right and left, because some of those parties who are against Netanyahu are on the right. Certainly, Naftali Bennett's Yamina party, Bennett and Shaked, Gidon Sars, New Hope party. Avigdor Lieberman's Yisrael Beitano party are all parties that are seen on the right. They just don't want Netanyahu as prime minister. So that's the main issue um, uh, in this election. It's a referendum on whether Benjamin Netanyahu will be the prime minister or somebody else will. That's the main issue in this election, just like the last four. Just like but, how, but how it's different, and we've said this, is that for the first time uh, in these, this series of, of five elections, Netanyahu will not be the incumbent, uh, which is a big difference. Why? Because what we saw in the last, in the in the, the the three elections prior to the last one, when Benjamin Netanyahu was the incumbent, but his Likud party was unable to form a government, he he was still he was in the prime minister's office during the election, and thus during the interim period after the election, he continued as prime minister. Correct. So in fact. Even though he couldn't form a government, he just stayed as prime minister for two years as the interim prime minister and his Likud party stayed in power. That's not going to be the case here. If we go to an election and uh, in uh, at the end of October or beginning of November, the results are inconclusive and neither side could form a government. And we have to go yet to another round of elections four or five months after that. Yair Lapid will still be the prime minister. And for we'll close continue. to a year, for, for close, close to, to a year, for close yeah. to a year, and 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 if there, we keep having deadlocked elections, Yair Lapid will continue to be the prime minister. Excellent, right? So the difference is in the past, in those previous elections, the Likud was willing to stick with Netanyahu uh. even though he couldn't form a new government because they still remained in power. This time, it's highly doubtful that the Likud will be willing to sit for years out of power. And allow Yair Lapid to be the interim prime minister if, in fact, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu cannot form a government. That is why everybody is saying this is the this is uh, this is the 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 decisive election for Netanyahu. It's do or die in this election for him. So th- that's amazing. That's an excellent, excellent point. I want to take a pause for an announcement for a minute and come come back to that because that's something that we need to dig down to. In addition to inspiration from Zion. Another Genesis 123 Foundation program, Run for Zion, is the first program uniquely for Christians centered around the Jerusalem Marathon, creating meaningful and lasting experiences. We look forward to having you be able to join us in person soon, but now are offering you a way to connect from wherever you are in the world through virtual tours, webinars, and briefings. For information or to register, please go to runforzion.com. Join Run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. Okay, so so you, okay, I, I love how you defined Netanyahu not as the elephant in the room, but the, but the room itself. But but you just raised a really fabulous point. If this next election is inconclusive, and if Netanyahu or Netanyahu or it's conclusive, and Netanyahu can't form a government again, do you see what's the realistic possibility? that anyone in the Likud was, will actually have the power to oust Netanyahu as the leader of the party so that, the, so that A, the Likud will, can come back into power and B, you have all these several 
um, young princes and princesses who were ready to succeed Netanyahu, but all except for, if I'm not mistaken, one who is Yuli Edelstein, has never really, who's still in Likud, who has never challenged Netanyahu. But they're waiting for him to, to, to no longer be prime minister so they can succeed him at some point as head of Likud. But where do you think that that's actually possible? Right. So let's take a look at this again. First of all, in the going against the idea that the Likud, uh, if if uh, after this coming election, the Likud or Benjamin Netanyahu could say is unable to form a government with, if the Likud would 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 seek to displace him. Uh, what goes against that is that the Likud shows tremendous loyalty to its leaders historically. Right. Uh, the best example is Benachem Begin, who lost, I think it was eight straight ah, elections excellent. from the 1948 to 1977. And he was challenged over the years. And the party just stuck with him until <laughs> they eventually uh, won. And even uh, uh, Yitzhak Shamir lost an election. And he resigned. Uh, uh, and then we just had, we have Netanyahu and, of course, Sharon uh, uh, broke with the party. So. Unlike the other parties in Israel, especially the Labour Party, let's say, the Likud sticks with its leadership. And as I mentioned, Benjamin Netanyahu has done a very good job of chasing away from the party other figures that could have challenged him over the years, like Gidon Saar uh, or uh, uh, Vigdor Liebman or uh, even even Naftali Bennett himself. So that goes against it. But uh, again, uh, we did hear some rumblings. We did hear some rumblings. Uh, in the in, in the previous after the previous election, and for the first time, you mentioned Yuli Edelstein, who had been one of the figures most loyal to Correct. to, to Correct. Benjamin Netanyahu. He was not a figure like Gidon Saar, who was always always seen as kind of an, as someone who was not part of Netanyahu's camp. Yuli Edelstein was very close to Netanyahu, and he decided to openly challenge him. Other figures uh, have also come forward and said they would be they. They would run like Israel Katz or Nir Barkat, the former mayor of Jerusalem, said they'll run for the leadership if Netanyahu steps down. Uh, so there are those there, there are people waiting in the wings. And you have to, you know, the question is whether they would be willing to sit another year and another year in which which Yair Lapid, somebody more from the center left side of the political spectrum is in power, if they would be willing to sit in opposition in that kind of situation. I suspect there would be grassroots pressure to say, no, all right, we've given Netanyahu his chance. Now is the time uh, to do something, to make a change. Because it's very likely, it's very possible, if the Likud would make a change, if we have a deadlock election, and the Likud makes a change, whoever takes the place of Benjamin Netanyahu would very likely be able to form a government, a government on the right. Correct. Because even now, the majority, as I mentioned, the majority of seats in parliament all are held by right-wing parties. Right. The problem is some of them won't accept Netanyahu personally. So I think there'll be a lot of pressure. I'm going to add one other factor that could come into play, play here to finally bring Netanyahu to step aside, and that is his trial. We have to remind your listeners that Netanyahu has been indicted on corruption charges. His trial is ongoing. He spends days uh, sitting in, 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 in court. He spent days sitting in court. Uh, you know, there are some who say the trial isn't going so good for him. Others who say it's going okay for him. Uh, but d- uh, next year, the trial will be moving along. It's, it's, it's expected, maybe not this year, but sometime next year, it'll be concluded. And if Netanyahu would be convicted, of course, he cannot, he would have to resign under current law. And there's a lot of speculation that Netanyahu would be willing to go for a plea bargain that would keep him out of prison. And remember, Israel has a precedent. It sentenced former Prime Minister Ehud Omer to prison. Correct. Uh, and Netanyahu would make a plea bargain uh, if, if to stay out of prison, but it would involve, it would entail giving up his political career. Right. And he'd be I, more, go ahead. He'd be more likely to do that if he loses the next election. If he knew, right, if he loses, excellent. That's an excellent point uh, because he had that opportunity. What was it this past January? I think when the we had a uh, change in attorney general and there was apparently a deal on the table, which Netanyahu didn't go for. And then ultimately, which, which, was, a, which was a nice gamble, but he right. still lost the election, um, at least as far as being able to form a coalition uh, 13 months ago. That's right. So he has had this chance, but I, as you said, he's gambled that he'd get one more shot. 
But the circumstance, like I said before, what's different now is that he's not the incumbent. Uh, you know, he can't continue, he wouldn't continue as prime minister in the case of a deadlocked election. So that would be make it, I think, more likely, uh, uh, more likely to reach a plea bargain. Uh, it's less likely he would make your plea bargain while he was prime minister. More likely, uh, if he's not, he, he's less protected. Excellent. So that is something that's different. And then we'll have to see. So, you know, if you would ask me, who is this, who's more like, what are the options uh, for to for someone to, who are the most likely people to emerge after the next election as prime minister? Certainly Netanyahu, you have to say, is is the favorite in the sense that, as I said, the whole election is a referendum on him. Yair Lapid, it's very difficult to see how he can make a coalition that would back him. Uh, the other realistic option would be other members of Likud that could step forward. You mentioned Yuli Edelstein. The other name, two names that come up big are um, uh, Israel Katz and Nir Barkat, the former mayor of Jerusalem. It's interesting so, for another conversation that you've boiled down the, the successors in Likud to those uh, to those three, even though that there are several others who aspire yes. for that, but that's a that's a good analysis. Um, uh, so again, it all comes down to Netanyahu. As all right, said, he's the rule. Okay, so so we've spoken about Avigdor Lieberman, who broke away from Netanyahu many years ago and formed his own party called Yisrael Beitenu. Yes. Most recently, prior to the last election, Gidon Sar, who had been a loyal, active member of Likud, did challenge Netanyahu for, for um, uh, chairmanship of the, of the party and lost, if I remember correctly, uh, about 25% to 75%. So Saar broke away and established his own party, New Hope. Um, Benny Gantz, who's the current minister of defense, was never in the Netanyahu camp, but did form a coalition, I think it was after the third of our elections. It's hard to keep track of all of it. And and then was burned by Netanyahu, who ended up forcing that government to fall apart in what would have, um, by this coming November, put put Gantz into the position of a rotating prime minister. Um, what the the I think they have all stated that they won't sit in a government with Netanyahu. Um, now, what people say and how people behave after the election um, can be different. But do you see anything happening? It's a long America where people are already campaigning for president for two and a half years away. But for us in Israel, four months is still a long political cycle and anything can happen. Do you see anything changing that might tilt, you know, t- today now as we speak in July, that might tilt where the vote actually um, plays out in ter- uh, different from what the polls are showing? Yes, there's a couple of things. First of all, the main thing always in Israel is security. Uh, if there would be a uh, another blow up with Gaza and uh, you know, with Hamas and another sort of full out conflict, that could have a balance. Um, if we saw more civil unrest uh, in Israeli Arab communities, like we saw last May, that could impact, that could drive some Israeli voters more to the right or say the pro Netanyahu camp, let's say. Uh, and of course, the big uh, the big issue is Iran. Um, one of the things that that uh, that uh, Bennett says he is proud. One of the achievements he's claiming, though it's 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 questionable how much uh, it, 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 the Israeli position influenced this. Uh, and Lapid also claims is that they prevented uh, the United States, the Biden administration, from reviving the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, which uh, uh, Israel has said, at least the deal that's on the table, the revived 2015 deal, would be a major security blow for Israel. Uh, and the Bennett and Lapid both are claiming claim credit for the fact that that didn't happen during the past year. Uh, others might say it's more the intransigence of Iran, which showed no signs of compromise. And, and a war in Russia. And, war and, in the, war, and, and the war in Russia, yes, another factor. Uh, but now there have been uh, uh, there uh, there have you know that we have we've seen a renewal of talks between world pa- the U.S. or actually between world powers in Iran, uh, and uh, if there would be an Iran deal that would be a bad deal for Israel on the face of it, that could influence people to go back to Netanyahu. Excellent. Um, that's one factor. Uh, so there are there are there are there are things. Uh, there's always 
uh, personal scandals. There's always, uh, uh, I mean, it's very strange. I do think some people, like people underestimate sometimes is uh, the impact of uh, overreach by the ultra-Orthodox community uh-huh. in Israel, uh, where they take actions that alienate voters on the right um, who uh, uh, might want to vote Likud, but have grown resentful of its alliance with the ultra-Orthodox parties. Uh, who are these people? These are the people that voted Gidon Sars party, the New Hope party, which is, I would say, a, certainly people on the right are voting for Gidon Sar, but there are people that don't necessarily agree with uh, uh, making Israel more in the nature of a Orthodox, or one might say ultra-Orthodox country. And of course, that's the base of Avigdor Lieberman. How is it that Avigdor Lieberman still manages to hold on to his uh, mainly Russian immigrant base, you know, between uh, five and eight seats, uh, even though we know those people, uh, those voters uh, tend to be on the right and tend to like Netanyahu. And it's because they don't like the alliance that Netanyahu has made with the ultra-Orthodox parties. Uh now, these are not, you know, I'm not, I don't want to exaggerate. Every, everything I, Israeli politics are very tribal. People tend not to shift their votes around that so much here. But because there's such a split right now between the pro and, and, and anti Netanyahu camps, uh, it's, you know, just a, a seat or two can make a difference. Uh, mm. this last government we just had for a year really survived on the basis of one vote. Of one, I'm sorry, not on one seat in, in the Knesset. Right. They, 100, uh, 150, 250,000 votes. So small, small events, small shifts can tell the difference. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the ultra Orthodox party because I wanted to go there. Um, you mentioned earlier that you didn't think Yair Lapid after this election could necessarily sustain putting together a government. And I have a, I have a hypothesis. You know, the ultra Orthodox parties are typically seen in uh, Netanyahu's camp, they're they're logged in as among the Zionist parties, even though they're really not particularly ardently Zionist. And and you, I'm glad you mentioned historically in the past because before um, Menachem Begin was elected prime minister, we saw ultra orthodox parties very happily sitting in left wing governments. And now, by the time this election comes around, we're going to be about a year and a half that they have been completely out of power, complete, I'm talking the ultra-Orthodox parties, completely sidelined, not having the budgets that they would have had for their own, as you said, tribal institutions. Do you see any possibility that one or both of the ultra-Orthodox parties could be wooed by a Yair Lapid to join a government and say, listen, you put your, you, you, you put your, uh, your chips on the Netanyahu camp all these years, but now we're offering you an opportunity, you know, to come back and be part of the conversation. You know what? It sounds unlikely, but no more <laughs> unlikely that uh, Mansour Abbas's Ram party, an Arab party, not just an Arab party, but an Arab party that whose roots are in, uh, is, is, you know, that it, it builds itself as sort of the Islamic version of, say, the Shah's party, meaning that it, it has religious roots, that that party would join a government headed by Naftali Bennett. Right. Uh, someone who has been an advocate of uh, of settlement in Judea and Samaria in the West Bank. So uh, there have been stranger things in Israeli politics. So I, could Yair would could they use could I envision a government where Yair Lapid is the prime minister and one or two of those parties would be in his government? I I think it's possible. I think it would mean that uh, probably. He would have to jettison. That would come at the expense of of Avigdor Lieberman's party, because Avigdor Lieberman has stated his whole party on open hostility, uh, specifically to those two religious party, ultra orthodox parties. uh, He would probably suffer. His base would suffer. I don't necessarily think Yair Lapid's base would suffer um, uh, if he brought in one or two of those parties, provided you know, in terms of practical terms. Uh, those parties would get their funding for their religious institutions, which is the most important thing for them. But there would be some other kind of concession. For example, in largely secular cities, you might see public transportation on the Jewish Sabbath on Shabbat or something like that. It's possible. 
it's possible. Unlikely, but more unlikely things have happened in Israel. Right, exactly. Well, we've we've seen we've seen the unlikely in the in the past right. uh, year. Uh, that's excellent. Now, he, so here's another theory, um, and I love your input uh, in the in the past series. And I don't I, I haven't followed it close enough, and I didn't do my homework um, before speaking to you to know if I can say in all four of the last uh, series of elections, but very frequently. Toward the end of the campaign, it was very common to see the Likud generally and Netanyahu in specific pivot in their messaging and campaign to attack the other right wing parties that are running for Knesset, specifically Yamina and specifically Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Chaked, who are the current heads of Yamina. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm do glad you, you brought that up. Well, you know, do you so so the question I'm going to ask, maybe you maybe you're thinking something different. Do you see now in October before the election or or or, or you know around around that time, Likud and Netanyahu pivoting to start attacking the religious Zionism party, which is polling quite high compared to the current seats in the Knesset, but but on the other hand, Netanyahu would desperately need the religious Zionism party to be strong in order to potentially put together a coalition. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, let me just a little background, because you bring up one of the the mysteries of Israeli politics, of recent <laughs> Israeli politics, which is why there is such hostility between Benjamin Netanyahu or hostility from Benjamin Netanyahu towards Naftali Bennett and Ayala Chaked, who, who has been his partner uh, uh, in politics over the more than the past decade, the past 15 years. I'll remind, for those who don't know, uh, both of them started directly working for Benjamin Netanyahu. Right. Um, uh, Ayala Chaked worked in Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, uh, office as an aide uh, uh, when he was not prime minister, when he was, I think, uh, he served as finance minister, if I'm not mistaken. And then uh, he was looking for a chief of staff for his office, and she recommended Naftali Bennett, who was then in high tech. And uh, something went wrong. Uh, and it's a mystery. We don't know the full story. Um, uh, I don't want to go into gossip. There is some gossip that some of the, <laughs> which I'm sure you, perhaps you've heard, that there's some personal an- animus uh, on the part of Sarah Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu's wife, towards Naftali Bennett and Yelichiket. It's never been adequately explained. Uh, those, their positions are very close. I mean, their outlook, their views, uh, they should be partners, and they're not. And that's never been quite exactly uh, explained. And it's cost Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu. I'll give you a good example of that. Uh, the, uh, there's a newspaper, uh, Yisrael Hayom, Israel Today newspaper, which was funded by the, uh, uh, the Adelsons, a wealthy American Jew, Sheldon Adelson, who passed away last year, Miriam Adelson, his wife. And uh, they, in recent year, in recent months, reportedly, the paper has been very pro-Netanyahu, supportive of Benjamin Netanyahu. In recent months, it seems to step back a little bit from that. And reportedly, some of that is because they're not happy with the continued hostility to Naftali Bennett uh-huh. uh, and Yela Chaked from the Netanyahu. So that's, that, that you know... Uh, that's that. As I said, that's one of the kind of mysteries of Israeli politics. Uh, could he break with religious Zionism? Of course. Uh, unfortunately for Benjamin Netanyahu, and um, you know, you have to give due credit to his achievements. Absolutely. Uh, to his political acumen, uh, to just his record. As you said, he's both the he was he's he has the longest serving tenure, both as prime minister consecutively and overall. Um, but uh, unfortunately, especially in recent years, he has a record of uh, not keeping his commitments to his partners, meaning forming partners, make partnerships, and then turning back on them. Uh, so is he capable of doing it with the religious Zionism party? I'd have to say yes, of course, given his record. Uh, it, it is possible. And don't forget, the religious Zionism party arguably cost him the premiership a year ago because they refused to... Uh, go into a government with the Mansour Abbas's Ram party after nego- Netanyahu had opened negotiations. Correct. Now, 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 just in recent in, in recent weeks, Netanyahu said he would not go into a, <laughs> a coalition with with it. But Mansour Abbas, the head of the Ram party, said Netanyahu absolutely offered him to be a part of the 
a government a year ago, and it was the religious Zionism party. But there is another mystery, another sort of mystery of Israeli politics that maybe makes it makes that less likely that Netanyahu would turn against religious Zionism. Uh, uh, about in 2015, it does appear that Netanyahu made a kind of maybe strategic or ideological uh, ideological shift. He turned more to the right. In 2015, he was in a coalition government that included Yair Lapid, that included Zippy Livni. He broke up that government on very tenuous, for very tenuous reasons. And it seemed like he decided, I'm going to go all in on a a religious right uh, government uh, with the right-wing parties, with the ultra-Orthodox parties. Uh, And it's never been fully clear why he made that shift. Uh, But it seems like that's where he staked himself politically and ideologically. And it would be a huge, a huge shift for him to now go back on that. Uh, uh, Again, a lot of theories uh, about why he might have made that shift, because in previous times, sometimes he would run to the center or he would after an election, he would try to form a unity government. He seems to have moved away from that and said, no, I'm only going to do a religious, a, a, a right-wing religious government. Excellent. Uh, and it's it's not clear why. That's another thing, bibliologists or however you want to call them, people that study Netanyahu have, have, have raised a lot of uh, theories about why that that has been. Well, I, I want to come back to that, but let's just take another quick break. Uh, I, I, want to, I want to dig deeper on that, specifically relating to, uh, to Netanyahu's uh, courting of Ram, the Arab party, a year ago. If you're a parent like me, you know there are plenty of reasons to worry about our kids. But there's one particular issue with enormous consequences for our kids that many are uncomfortable discussing, online pornography. As kids spend more and more time online, they're being exposed to explicit sexual content at record rates. By age 13, many are exposed to graphic sexual content that has serious lasting consequences. Even though research links pornography exposure to worse mental health, unstable relationships, and other issues, the big tech companies are doing almost nothing to stop it. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Canopy, a new partner of ours that's helping parents take back control over what their kids see online. Canopy uses state-of-the-art artificial intelligence developed here in Israel to make the internet safe for our kids by blocking explicit material on every single website. You can learn more and subscribe with special rates at canopy.us. And when you use our special discount code, Genesis123, at checkout, you'll get 30 days free and 15% off your subscription forever. Your kids will thank you for life. So, okay, Kalev, this has been fascinating. Now, now you had said, I remember what adjective you you used, but certainly unprecedented and and, and very significant that Ram joined this, uh, the current government. Um, a year ago and, 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 and broke from what was a long standing, if you will, Arab tradition in the, in, in the Israeli Arab parties to be um, always in the opposition, to always oppose the government. And, and, and Mansour Abbas seems to me to have shown some vision. Um, and it's, and it's a open, I don't know if it's even close to a secret, but it's, it's clear that Netanyahu clear, would, would have happily, if he could have used the, the four Ram seats if it had not been at the expense of the religious Zionism. But I want to talk, you know, m- maybe Netanyahu will come back. Maybe Mansour Abbas is enjoying having the influence and he's, uh, and, and having some success perhaps for the Arab community. One in five, uh, Israelis are, are Arabs and that's important to know. But what do you think before we even talk about that deeper? What do you think is the significance of Ram joining the government? And, and what kind of precedent does that set for the coming elections and sort of in general in Israeli society? I think it's a huge, huge significance. And I think people underestimate it. And that is the most significant, uh, most significant factor of the government that has just fallen, that it was included it. Look, for many years, Jonathan, people speculated that, you know, what would happen if there would be an Arab political force, Israeli Arab political force, that didn't put at the top of its agenda the Palestinian issue, that put at the top of its agenda the issue of advancement, uh, both civilly, uh, both in terms of civil rights and economic advancement of the Israeli Arab community. 
Uh, and would that open the way for Israeli Arabs who, let's keep in mind, they represent 20, some 20% of the Israeli population. Right. That's a, that is a major, major force, more than the ultra-Orthodox, Correct. for example. Excellent. Uh, uh, you know, what would be, what would be the impact if you would have a political force that would, would, would make that decision and thus be willing to sit with parties, um, uh, that, for example, did not accept a Palestinian state, that even parties that supported, uh, uh Jewish settlement in Judea and Samaria. And Mansour Abbas emerged as that leader over the past year. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's how this government survived. That's why this government survived one year. And when this government broke, uh, you know, when it, when it was formed, many people said the weak link in this government will be the Ram party, that eventually, uh, it will break off because it will oppose either expanding, uh, Jewish settlements in Judea and Samaria or, it will, uh, it will be a conflict with, with Hamas and Gaza and it won't support Israeli military actions. It turned out not to be the case. Mansour Abbas pretty much kept his, uh, troops in line and stayed in the government. It was the, uh, Naftali Bennett's own right wing Yamina party that jumped. So this is a huge shift in Israeli politics and a precedent was set. And weirdly enough, and we discussed it, uh, it was not, the only reason Naftali Bennett was able to bring Mansour Abbas and the Ram Party into his government without a total instant revolt by his own uh, f- faction, and also get the reason why Gidon Saar's party and Avigdor Lieberman, who's been one of the most hostile Israeli politicians towards uh, certain elements in the Israeli Arab community, the only reason he was able to do that was because Benjamin Netanyahu had opened negotiations with Mansour mm-hmm. Abbas to enter in a coalition. And they met, I think, four or five times, even at, at, at Balfour, at the prime minister's residence, which was unprecedented. Right. That, op- that opened the way. So in a weird way, the, the final achievement of Benjamin Netanyahu's long political career <laughs> could have been that he opened the way for Israeli Arabs, uh, parties to join uh, or support an Israeli government. Going into the current election, where there are two Arab parties, Ram and one called the Joint List, and clearly the Joint List will campaign, they'll, they'll both campaign against one another. Does yes. Mansour Abbas and Ram have a good track record in the last year? Can they show the Israeli-Arab community that they've had achievements and, and, and more people should vote for them? Well, the polls, the uh, uh, if you look at the polls that have been taken, uh, all of them pretty much show the same thing. Uh, Mansour Abbas is stable. Doesn't gain anybody, doesn't does didn't lose any, which is very characteristic in Israel. Like I said, Israeli politics tend to be very tribal. And it appears that Mansour Abbas tapped into a, not the majority of Israeli Arabs politically, but certainly a, 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 a minority in Israeli Arabs, but a significant enough to give, get him into parliament that does agree that they want to see, they're more concerned with the, economic and civil advancement of the Israeli Arab community than the Palestinian community. So Mansour Abbas's party, in all the polls, they are passing the minimum threshold and basically maintain their current status. Maintaining, but not eating away at the, at the joint list. Not eating away, but, you know, you could argue a year. um, First of all, we don't know. That's the polls that have been until now. Right. We'll see when Mansour Abbas starts campaigning. uh, it may help him that Yair Lapid, a figure who's been more sympathetic to his uh. community than Naftali Bennett is, is the, is the incumbent prime minister or inter, incumbent interim prime minister. That could help Mansour Abbas. But the fact is, if he keeps staying in joining governments and keeps being the, the, the vehicle who is bringing more funding into Israeli Arab communities, who is helping them advance on some other issues like the Arab crime issue, uh, for example, uh, or criminal violence in the Arab, Israeli Arab sector. If he keeps that up, you would imagine he will start eating into these other parties and they'll start, those other parties might start reconsidering their position of saying, no, the Palestinian issue above all, or almost even to the exclusion of other things. Yeah. So that, could, that, that could be a shift. Excellent. Thank you. I want to look ahead to next week. Uh, President Biden is coming to Israel. Um, he'll be received by our new interim prime minister, Yair Lapid. 
How does the political instability of uh, I, which may be unprecedented with a with a visiting head of state coming during this election cycle? Um, I, I, I don't know if that's historically correct, but it's still it's still very significant that that Biden will be here at the at the outset of this electoral cycle, and ascent, and, and that Yair Lapid will be the prime minister who's greeting him in his official capacity as new prime minister. What are the what what do you have a sense of first of all what Biden's visit will be about here, yeah. and then what are the possible outcomes um, in general, but also relating to the election? Right. First of all, it is a very sensitive time for Biden to come. Uh, he is going to meet apparently also privately with Benjamin Netanyahu is in order to avoid the, the fact that the, the avoid the implication that he's coming here and that's going to benefit uh, 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 Prime Minister Lapid and the the let's say the anti Netanyahu camp. But the truth is, it is it is helping Lapid. It will help Yair Lapid. It will increase his stature to be greeting uh Joe Biden as the acting prime minister uh and that will you know a lot of the skepticism about Yair Lapid is whether he is the gravitas a former uh, uh, uh he's a former TV anchor you know unfortunately TV anchors I speak on behalf of TV anchors some people <laughs> don't take us seriously enough and people said Yair Lapid is a lightweight he can hold his own in international forums and this will help dispel it I don't know how many votes that would get him or help him. Uh, by the way, it's not unprecedented for an American president to aid a a, uh, a one side in election. Let's just, just look at former President Donald Trump recognizing the Golan Heights, correct? Granting American recognition of Israeli sovereignty of the Golan Heights, and then later admitting he specifically did that to help Netanyahu. Right. So that's not unprecedented. Uh, but this this is a very significant visit because what we're hearing more and more is that the purpose will be to set up some, in a way, advance the Abraham Accords, not to the point where countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar will recognize the state, will open full diplomatic relations with the state of Israel, but perhaps to create a defensive alliance, a, a regional defensive alliance that will include the so-called moderate Sunni Arab states, like Egypt, Jordan, uh, the Gulf states, like the UAE and Bahrain, but also perhaps Saudi Arabia and Qatar in a, um, in a, in a defensive alliance that would include Israel. And this alliance basically would be the almost kind of like a Mideast NATO yeah. uh, 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 allied against Iran, the threat of Iran, Iran sort of representing Russia in this equation. And that's what we're hearing is what the, the goal, the aim is going to be uh, or with the ambition, it's not clear that that's going to be achieved or at what level that's going to be achieved. But the A, that would be very significant on a geopolitical scale, very significant, and significant for Israel, a great benefit for Israel. B, yeah, politically, it could it could benefit Yair Lapid, though many people will argue that Netanyahu laid the groundwork for this happening uh, with the help of Donald Trump, with the Abraham Accords. Yes. And that argument certainly could be made. Uh, so, uh, but, but if, but, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big deal. And this, this, this trip could be a very big deal. You didn't say anything about the Palestinians, even though we know Biden is going to come here and meet with, uh, not, no, no relationship with, uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the, the Palestinian authority president, um, no, no pressure at this point from, from, uh, from the Biden administration for a sit down or or Israeli concessions toward um, some sort of negotiations toward a Palestinian state or that needs to be off the table until after the election? I think it's two things. It probably needs to be off the table after the election. I think they'll want some gestures from Israel to ease the the, uh, the let's say the conditions of Palestinians in the West Bank and maybe Gaza. If it, it, it's quiet. But there's two things. Yes, until there's elections, until we know uh, what kind of government there'll be in, in, you know, after the autumn. And the other is, listen, there's a lot of talk about Mahmoud Abbas's health. Yeah, there always is. But there are signs that he's trying to arrange some kind of succession. Um, we haven't even seen, you know, Abbas has kept a low profile of late. And I think the U.S. understands that, that the Palestinians may be on the verge of a major transfer of power themselves. 
and we'll have to see how that that plays out. And, you know, I'm going to go back to what you said earlier about what something that could happen that could change uh. the equation. Uh, yeah, if something happens to Mahmoud Abbas uh, and that brings about some kind of major development or uh, upheaval in Palestinian politics, that could be another thing, another thing that could factor in. On, on, on many dimensions, because on many dimensions, right? Because it will, it will, uh, there will be a crowning or uh, or some sort of campaign to to a degree, not in a, not in a democratic way, to re- succeed him. But there'll also necessarily be hostilities from Hamas trying to uh, 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 assert its authority, and and that typically comes with violence. I'll go further. Not only just from Hamas against, say, uh, uh, Fatah or the Palestinian Authority, the West Bank, but even within the former the camp of Mahmoud Abbas, there are claimants to the throne, let's say. Yeah. Uh, and we could, there could be uh, uh, violence within uh, uh, West Bank cities, Palestinian communities between different supporters. So that's another wild card. Wow. It could come into effect, into playing. Yeah, it could also even come into play before the next election, Israeli election. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, Kalev, this has been fascinating. Before we conclude, I, I, I kind of made a list of questions and topics to go through, but having you as the um, uh, analyst and, and, and real experienced journalist that you are, first of all, I, I, I don't want to neglect to say this. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm grateful and I, I, I'm sure everyone else listening is as well. But, but let's kind of let you unleash, unleash you. What are the things that Kalev Ben David goes to bed thinking about re- regarding the election, regarding things to look at that are below the radar of most observers? I and mean, we just spoke about Abbas, uh, Mahmoud Abbas being one of them. But w- what are the things that, that someone with a more skilled eye like yourself wants us to be looking at for how things are going to play out in the fall? You know, uh, there's a few things. One is, of course, we live in a very unstable region and many external factors. We talked about Iran. Uh, there are other wild cards that, that could come into play here in, uh, in Israel. Um, I am a long-term resident of Jerusalem, uh, and I do feel definitely more than I think many other Israelis, the conflicts between, and it's not a religious secular conflict, but between the ultra-Orthodox community and I would say the non-ultra-Orthodox, everybody else, basically. Yeah. I think that's underestimated uh, uh, in within Israeli society, and that has impacted on, on elections, and I, I, I have concerns, uh, uh, certainly, about that. Uh, but I, I, I will have to tell you, and I, I'm trying to end on a more positive note, uh, you know, I came in 1985. The country was pretty divided then. There was, I could give you examples things even, divisions even worse than in some ways exist today, even though there was a unity government that was fairly effective. The economy was at a low point. Israel was much yeah. more isolated. Um, you know, a lot of the complaints are the same, the political system, which we've been discussing starting as number one, I would say. But in many other ways, uh, Israel has moved forward. Sometimes a country can advance even when its political system is far below what the rest of the country is. You know, Italy should be a complete mess now. Uh, politically, it is a mess, but somehow that country goes on. And it's not everything is politics. You have to look at the culture of a country. You have to look at other, the social, the social, the economy, which we barely touched on. Every other country, we'd be talking the economy for an hour, less so in, in Israeli politics because it's so tribal. Uh, but these are factors. These are important factors. And I think one of the things we try to do at I-24 News is you know, say it's not, nothing is simple. Don't simplify it. It's not necessarily right for first left or just religious versus uh, secular or uh, Jew versus Arab or, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's all very complex and all, uh, we just don't know necessarily what's going to happen to come. And I'll end with one of my favorite quotes. Uh, they once asked, um, uh, Cho Enlai, the, he was the number two to Mao Zedong in communist China. The, I think his role was president of China. And in the 1970s, they said, what do you think the historical impact of the French Revolution 
has been, you know, the French Revolution, which had taken place 200 years earlier. <laughs> Cho En Lai's reply is, it is too soon to tell. <laughs> so, Excellent. So, Excellent. You know, everything we've discussed, you asked me, what is the ultimate impact of everything we've been discussing? Ask me again in 200 years, and maybe I'll have an answer. I, I will look forward to that conversation, and I reserve the right to have these conversations much more frequently because uh, it's really great, insight, in, great, insightful, and and uh, uh, eye opening. I'm really grateful, Kalev Ben David, uh, the the uh, host and uh, uh, of of I twenty four news program, the rundown. Um, I encourage everyone to follow you there and on your Facebook in order to uh, in order to continue getting this uh, this great insight. Thank you for for taking your time. That was my pleasure, Jonathan. Let me just wrap up by by some final announcements. First of all, I like to joke, if you've stayed with us this long, you deserve a reward, although certainly today the reward was in the conversation. Uh, beginning this year, Genesis 123 Foundation began offering a special gift each month, providing a special volume we call From Jonathan's Bookshelf. Uh, all we ask is that people go to the inspiration from Zion social media, like and follow and comment. And when you do so, we pick one winner at random to receive a volume that's relevant and maybe because of entering the election season, we'll find one really good this month that goes into the uh, Israeli political system. We're always grateful that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse. And if you're in the area in Culpeper, Virginia and need something, pop in or go and say hi and thank them for helping make uh, programs and conversations like this possible. And also thank you to the Coyne family for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider to join us, joining us to help continue the dialogue and to build bridges. And if you'd like to sponsor a future episode of Inspiration from Zion in honor or memory of loved one or a special occasion, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. As always, we'd love to hear your comments as part of an ongoing dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially for uh, questions about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please do share this program with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judea Mountains. God bless you. Hallelujah, al